We'll be looking at verses 2 through 12 today. If you don't have a Bible, text will appear on the screens. We're going to jump right into it and uh, read the text and then uh, ask for the Lord to open its meaning to us. Galatians 5, 2 through 12. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who, would un who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Let's pray. It's so good, Lord, that we have good news. That there's an answer to all of our brokenness. That there's a future and a hope. And the first century churches were losing that hope. They were losing the answer. They were getting persuaded by something else. And today we're also surrounded by messages and our own hearts connect with them where we lose hope or we put our hope in something else, but you're here, you're with us this morning by your Spirit to point us to the real freedom, the real foundation on which we can build our lives. And so we ask you again, make it plain, impress it on our hearts. You know everybody's needs this morning and where they're struggling, and we ask you now, even pour out this gospel medicine on them, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> there comes a time when you're counseling somebody over a long time where there's some serious problem in their life and, and you just you might not see the change happening that you're, that you're hoping for. You might not think that they're understanding. And so, so there's a point where you just have to cut to the chase. And you just have to say it very clearly and very memorably what it is they need to know. Uh, where, where this has to go and, and how. Maybe they're dealing with a chronic irresponsibility. Maybe they're in an inappropriate relationship. Maybe they're just struggling with who knows what. And, and, uh, and you just got to, like, at some point just say, look, like, if you keep going in this direction, here's what's going to happen. But here's what you need to do to get out of it. Like, okay, that's the core. Like, we have to get there somehow. Well, that's what Paul's doing in this part of the letter to the Galatians. 
they have a serious problem. Their, their serious problem is there are people influencing the churches um, and telling them a different gospel than the one Paul preached. Paul preached that a person is made right with God, forgiven their sins, granted a seat at the Father's table of blessing entirely through faith in Christ who bore the penalty for our sins on the cross. That's the saving message. But these other teachers are saying, no, that's not enough. You also need to do a few things. Most importantly, you need to get circumcised. You need to, to have that sign that you're one of the covenant people of God. And only then can you rest and say, okay, I'm right with God. That was the problem. And so for four chapters, Paul's been reasoning with the churches from the Old Testament and from logic that that teaching is not the gospel, it's not good news, there's no hope in that direction. And now that he's walked through all these rational proofs, he, he cuts to the chase, he sums up as clearly and as memorably as he can what's the bottom line. In verse 2, he says, Look, I say to you, if you accept circumcision... Christ will be of no advantage to you. In other words, salvation must be all of Christ or you are not saved at all. It can't depend in any way on a good work that you perform. If you trust in anything else along with Christ or apart from Christ, you won't participate in all the benefits that He came to give us. You won't be forgiven. You won't have God's favor. You won't have eternal life. And then he, he ends his section with this graphic exclamation point. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. That's an awkward statement for somebody to preach. <laughs> because that means exactly what you think it means. <laughs> Don't stop at circumcision. Let the knife go all the way. And what his sentiment is, I wish these guys would just cut themselves off from you and stop teaching you this nonsense. This is relevant for us today. Because every generation, every person is prone to putting our hope for life in something else besides Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Whether you're religious or irreligious, we naturally base our hope on some form of the equation, if I just do this, then life is good. And if there's an afterlife, surely I'll end up in a good place. But that gospel, that salvation story, won't work for any of us. And even believers who have put their trust in Christ by faith, we can stray, we can start to have our acceptance for God rise and fall on whether or not we feel like we're doing good, which is the same thing. It's the same root problem. Salvation is all of Christ received by faith in Him. Or it isn't salvation at all. We're going to walk through the passage and see how Paul explains this and make application along the way. So the first truth that Paul wants to drive home is this one. Your own righteousness 
doesn't count at all towards God's acceptance. Your own righteousness doesn't count at all towards God's acceptance. Your virtues, your good deeds, your moral behavior, none of it counts towards your acceptance. It has no place in what motivates God to forgive you or to give you a seat at his table. And I'm drawing that from verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. We'll come back to the faith part of that sentence later, but he's talking here about what counts for our right standing with God, that what we call justification. It's a word we saw earlier in chapter 2. Justification is the status of being declared righteous by God. And Paul says it makes no difference if you are circumcised Jew or an uncircumcised Gentile. God isn't looking to what you do. He's not looking at your religious observance or your non-observance. The only thing that counts is faith in Christ. A faith that will lead to loving works, but it's the faith that counts towards your right standing, not the good works that follow it. And now that just doesn't make sense to our natural minds. Because we naturally think if God is going to give us good things, it's because we did good things to deserve it. But that's not how the gospel works. Paul says in verse 3, he makes it clear by saying if the gospel worked that way, you'd never be able to do enough good things to earn God's salvation. He says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision, he is obligated to keep the whole law. So in other words, if you want your righteous deeds to be part of the equation for how you get right with God, you should realize you can't just do one good thing like circumcision. You can't just do a few good things. You can't just do mostly good things. You have to keep the whole law. You have to do everything God has ever commanded us to do in all of scriptures. Because that's God's standard for righteousness. That's what you'd have to do to be acceptable. You see, we naturally think the bar is pretty low for what God requires of us. If you haven't committed murder, if you say you're sorry when you do wrong, if you're nice to people, if you're working for a better society, how could God find anything wrong with that? I'm surely in good standing with him. But God says, actually, the standard. If you're going to rely on your own deeds is you are obligated to keep the whole law. And Jesus explained in the Sermon on the Mount that keeping his God law doesn't just mean doing certain things. It means your heart has to be fully compliant with the intention of the law. So he said in Matthew 5, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. That's one of the Ten Commandments. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You don't have to just do the act to violate the commandment. You just need to have the desire in your heart. And that's breaking the law. The standard for righteousness is just too high for us. It's not going to work. 
In fact, Paul says in verse 4, if you would be justified by the law, here's what's true of you. You are severed from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. Severed means cut off. You're cut off from the saving benefits of Christ. If you rely on your own good actions, even if it's just one thing like circumcision, you're not connected to Christ. You won't benefit from his work on the cross. You got to think of it like this. It's like a computer program that has a million lines of code. And let's call that program the gospel. It's the gospel program. And if you just use that program as is and you don't change it, it works fine. It reconciles you to God. It makes you a beloved son or daughter. But the moment you insert one line of your own code... You break it. (laughs) It doesn't work anymore because it's not the gospel anymore. You added this extra line of code called law-keeping, your righteous works, and now it's broken. It doesn't work. It doesn't connect you to God anymore. It severs you from Christ. And here's why it breaks the gospel program. Paul says, if you add works to it, you have fallen away from grace. We tend to think falling away from grace means you've abandoned the faith. But Paul is saying falling away from grace is when you add something to your faith. Namely, works. Grace is God's freely given favor to people who have done nothing to deserve it. And the gospel is based on grace. So the moment you insert your works into it, it's no longer grace. Now it depends on you. And your righteousness, you deserve it somehow. And that won't work. That's falling away from grace. The bottom line is your own righteousness doesn't count for anything for God's acceptance. It has no part in how he saves you. And that is hard to accept because nothing else in our lives works that way. (laughs) You get things because you pay for them. Right? You can't walk out of the store with a shirt. You know, somebody expects you to pay for that, right? People like you because you're funny or you're kind or there's some other quality that they appreciate, but they're still, it's still based on you somehow. Good comes to you by something good you do or something good about you in our world, but the gospel doesn't work that way. It comes to people who are not good. It comes to people who don't deserve it. Thomas Wilcox is a person from the 1600s, and he captured the heart of this truth. And I'm going to quote from this little pamphlet, this little booklet, Honey Out of the Rock. I've, I've quoted from it before, but I got this like 20 years ago at Pastors College, and it's heavily underlined <laughs> because I need it for my soul. And he got this so well, this idea that the gospels of grace and not but not because we deserve it it's not based on our righteousness here's what he says when you believe and come to christ you must leave behind you your own righteousness and bring nothing but your sin oh that is hard leave behind all your holiness sanctification, duties, humbling, and so on, and bring nothing but your wants and miseries. You must be an undone sinner, 
or Christ and you will never agree. Join anything to him of your own and you unchrist him. That's the heart of it. We can't bring anything of our own to the table and say, see what I did, Lord? Now will you accept me? Nothing we do counts towards our salvation. So what does count? <laughs> How do we get saved? It comes down to this, which is the second point. God accepts you on the basis of Christ's righteousness received by faith. It's His righteousness that saves us. We receive it by faith. We see it in verse 5. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Now the hope of righteousness refers to this confident expectation of what God is going to do for those who are counted righteous. It's the expectation of His help in this life and eternal life after death. It's the expectation of God's blessings to the righteous. But how do we get that righteousness that gives us this certain hope that God's going to bless us, seeing that we're unrighteous, seeing that we haven't kept the whole law, seeing that we're broken and we're flawed and we've sinned in many ways? And the answer is, we receive it by faith. Through the Spirit, by faith, we eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. Faith is the instrument by which we receive the righteousness that brings God's blessing. And as we've seen earlier in Galatians and in other places in Paul's letters, it's Christ's own righteousness that's credited to us when we put our faith in Him as the one who bore our sins. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, God has made Christ, Jesus, our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So bottom line, the gospel message is that through faith we receive the status of being righteous with the righteousness of Christ himself who is sinless. And that gives us confidence. We eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. We, we already are enjoying and we are going to enjoy fully one day the forgiveness of sin and God's help in every way and joyful eternal life with God after death. And the key is we receive it by faith and we put no trust in our own morality or good works. To, to put it in an illustration, suppose a child is climbing a tree and he slips, she slips, uh, find themselves hanging from a branch about 10 feet off the ground, dangling. And uh, the parent sees that and rushes over and goes underneath the child who's hanging there for dear life on the branch, and, and the parent says, okay, just let go and I'll catch you. And so in that moment, the, the child has to make a decision. Am I going to let go, because this feels safe to me, at least I'm not dying, but if I let go, I have to completely trust mom or dad, whoever's there, to catch me. There's that choice that the child has to make. Well, we have a natural tendency to hang on to the branch of our own righteousness to save us. 
we feel safer. We feel like God must accept us because of our good actions. But the gospel says, let go of the grip on your own righteousness. Trust God to give you Christ's righteousness as you put your faith in Him. Trust in the one who, as Peter said, suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And again, Thomas Wilcox puts it plainly in his helpful little tract. He said, to accept Christ's righteousness alone, his blood alone for salvation, that is the sum of the gospel. When the soul in all duties and distress can say nothing but Christ, Christ alone for righteousness, that soul has got above the reach of the billows. <laughs> Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector is an illustration of that very thing. You might be familiar with it. The Pharisee, he's the holy man. He's so proud of how well he's keeping the law. And he's praying and and he's recounting to God how good he is. He says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. I know I'm good with you, Lord, because I'm, I'm doing the things you tell me to do. But the tax collector, the thief, the traitor, the one who knows his sin, he's praying also, and he simply says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, this man went down to his house justified, declared righteous not the other. For the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The tax collector, not the Pharisee, is counted righteous and exalted into the realm of God's acceptance and blessing forevermore. So faith, not our righteous deeds, brings us into that realm. Now with a free gift like that, that's ours for the taking, just through humbling ourselves and Receiving it through faith. You'd think, well, everybody in the world would want to get in on that. I mean, that sounds so easy. So much easier than trying to keep the whole law all the time, 24-7. It's just by faith. Let me, great, get me in on that. You'd think, everybody wants this. Surely once they're exposed to this, they'll go, they'll go with Christ. But there's always a pull away from that. There are hurdles, there are challenges, mostly because of what's going on in our own heart to doing that. And so that's the last thing to talk about here is that there is much that's working against resting in Christ's righteousness for salvation. There's a lot working against it. In the rest of the passage, we'll pick out two main reasons why it's hard to believe and to keep on believing functionally that Christ is our hope, that He is our righteousness, that He's the real reason we can be before God full of confidence. There are barriers to believing the gospel. Barriers if you're a non-Christian. Um, but even barriers for saved believers who can unwittingly and functionally shift our hope uh, from Christ to our own works. So let's look and see why that's the case. The first thing, working against resting in Christ's righteousness for salvation. And I think this influences the church more than the world. It's legalistic teachers. 
legalistic teachers. That is, the people that we trust to be teaching God's Word can lead us astray on this. Legalism isn't, as some might think, being careful to keep all of God's commands in the Bible. That's not legalism. That's just obedience. Legalism is when you make your obedience the reason for God's acceptance. And that's what the teachers were saying to the churches of Galatia. They told the Galatian Christians, you need to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses if you want to be included in God's covenant people. And here's the effect that their teaching was having on the believers in the churches. Verses 7 and 8. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. So the new believers in Galatia, they were doing great. They believed the gospel that Paul taught, the one about grace of God in Christ. And it says they were obeying the truth. True obedience to the gospel is to rest in the declaration of God that you are righteous in Christ by faith. That's obedience to the truth. But then somebody comes in and says, oh, that's not enough. You need your own righteousness. And Paul says that hinders you, this thought. The word hindered, it comes from the world of sports, of running. It's a runner who cuts in front of you, slows down your pace, maybe knocks you over, stops your forward progress altogether. That's what happens when you go from resting in Christ's righteousness to putting your trust in your own righteousness. You actually stop obeying the truth of the gospel. It's a hindrance to the freedom and joy that you, that you could have, that God wants for you. Paul says, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. This isn't God's idea that you add your works to faith. No, that's man's idea. God never said that. Him who called you. This isn't coming from him. It's just coming from the teacher, but not from God. Legalistic teaching was a problem and it still is a problem for the church today. And I know that because I'm a teacher. And I feel the temptation to preach legalistically. To preach in such a way that makes you think, I better get my act together or God doesn't love me. God isn't for me. I don't have a good relationship with Him. I have feel that temptation. There's a natural pull of legalism whenever I write a sermon. What happens is that we teachers, we look at the Bible and we see all these commands that are in it. And they're good commands. God's will is good and acceptable and perfect. So we want to teach the commands which are right. They're for our welfare. But we can teach them in a way that makes it sound like you have to do this or you're not a Christian as if you have to be sinless in order for God to accept you. And then the congregation picks up on that, and subtly we create this culture where, without directly saying it, we really act as if we're saved by our own righteousness. And then this non-believer or a visitor comes in, and, and, they, and they, they come in with brokenness in their lives, but they don't encounter an environment of grace where we all know that we're just sinners saved by grace. Instead, they encounter this expectation, you'd better clean up your act if you want to be one of us. Now, I'm not saying that because a visitor told me. Okay, I didn't hear that from anybody, and I'm not observing that. 
but I know what's in my own heart. And I don't think it's only in my heart. I think it's natural for all of us. When I write a message, usually I look at the first draft and I look at it and I go, oh, I forgot the gospel. I forgot to put that in there. (laughs) Because it's easy to tell people what they're supposed to do. But it's harder to preach the grace of God that is the only lasting motivation for obedience. We need to preach both. When I was in pastor's college, I learned a guideline for preaching that I try to follow when I'm writing a sermon. And the guideline is this. Preach the imperatives in the context of the indicatives. And if you're not an English major, let me reword that in street language (laughs) like I can understand. In other words, don't just tell people what to do, the imperatives. Tell them what God has already done for them, the indicatives, the things that are just there. They're just true. They're underneath it all. Because our obedience to God has to flow out of our gratitude for what He has done for us on the cross. Otherwise, we start putting our hope in our own righteous deeds. And this is actually the major pattern of the Bible. Even in the book of Galatians, which is very corrective in nature, Paul doesn't give this first command until chapter 4 after he's already preached through the gospel for three, more, for three chapters plus. If we do the commands without remembering the grace that saves, we end up hindered in our walk with the Lord. So legalists or teachers can keep us from resting in Christ's righteousness as our hope and joy. But here's another thing working against it. And I think this speaks to both churched and unchurched people, believers and unbelievers. And that's our pride. Our pride is a huge barrier for resting in Christ's righteousness. And first of all, I mean that the idea that we can save ourselves, it appeals to our pride. And this comes up from reflecting on verse 9. He says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Leaven is yeast. The whole lump is the dough that rises and makes lots of loaves of bread. And this is in the context of the legalistic teaching. The point is that teaching people to trust in their own righteousness has a powerful influence in the church. It's a small thing that has a large impact because it's easily accepted. Whole churches can shift from the gospel of Christ alone for righteousness. Denominations of churches can shift from the gospel. Why does this teaching have such potential to spread to everyone? It's because it feels right that if we do good things, we deserve good things from God. We we can pat ourselves on the back. We can take credit for having the common sense, the strength of character, the personal holiness to do what God requires. And another voice from the past, John Brown of Haddington. I think that's in England, I don't know, probably. All the great quotes come from England. Uh, He put it this way in the 1700s. He said, all men by nature, and even believers insofar as they are unrenewed, desire to obtain happiness by their own righteousness. Our own working or suffering in order to obtain happiness from God is exceedingly suited to the pride of our corrupt nature and makes us to look on God as our debtor. 
In other words, we like to think that God owes it to us to bless us because we've been so good. You know, we've done the right thing. Now, there is a correlation between blessing and obedience in the Bible. We can't forget that. Jesus said in his example of servanthood in John 13, If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. There is a correlation between blessing and obedience, but the basis for the blessing is always his work on the cross, never the quality of our obedience, because our quality is never good enough to deserve the blessing. Uh, to use another illustration besides yeast, um, a gospel that includes your works grows like the way weeds grow, but the gospel of Christ's righteousness grows more like grass. So here's what I mean. Weeds grow even when you're trying to kill them, <laughs> but grass only grows if you constantly take care of it. The weeds of self-righteousness grow easily in our hearts. But resting in Christ's righteousness and not our own takes constant reminders that salvation is all of Christ and all of grace. The idea that our works count towards salvation appeals to our pride. But the flip side is that the reality that our works don't count at all, that offends our pride. And we see that in verse 11. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. The offense of the cross. It offends us. Apparently, some people thought Paul was totally in favor of believers getting circumcised because he used to be so zealous for it. He was a Pharisee. Um, he was circumcised. He used to force it. Uh, it was, you had to do this. So, so maybe there's this rumor going around that Paul's still teaching those kinds of things. But he says, well, if I'm preaching circumcision, why am I being persecuted by the Jews wherever I go? If I'm saying the same thing they are, why did they nearly stone me to death in, in Lystra? Why did they chase me out of Iconium and, and these other places? If I'm saying the same thing, if I'm preaching circumcision, well, the, the reason is because I'm not doing that. Instead, I'm preaching the gospel. They persecute me because I preach neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. I preach the hope of righteousness comes from resting in Christ alone. I preach, you have to admit, you're a desperate, needy sinner who brings nothing to the table that would make God forgive you and bless you eternally. I preach that salvation must be all of Christ and nothing of yourself or you are not saved. That's why they're persecuting me. It is offensive to our natural pride to hear that. It's the offense of the cross. Isn't that why we're often fearful of sharing the gospel with other people? Why would we be afraid of that? if it's so amazingly good news that everybody would love, is because everybody doesn't love it. <laughs> we didn't love it till the Lord opened our eyes. We, it's, we, it's offensive. The gospel is offensive to the natural mind. We have to humble ourselves like that tax collector. And we don't like it. We don't like to admit that we're that bad. Now, we need to take care 
we're not needlessly offensive in the way we talk about it, the way that we live it. I sometimes cringe when I read what professing Christians post on social media. Um, Some of it is just in-your-face, self-righteous, we're doing it right. And, And I read it, and I think, are you actually trying to win people to Christ? Because there's nothing attractive at all about what you're saying. Because it doesn't smell like the attitude of the tax collector. God be merciful to me, a sinner. So we can't be offensive in the way that we bring it, but there's no avoiding the fact the gospel confronts our pride. We have to let the truth of the gospel offend, but not our sinful way of presenting it. If there's anything clear in the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, is that we cannot live without God. Only Christ can save us from the sin and the guilt that we have and reconcile us to our Maker. Because from the beginning, Christ is a serpent crusher in the garden who deals the death blow to the source of evil, frees us from its power. He's the the goat in Leviticus that is slain for the sins of the people on the Day of Atonement and the scapegoat that's released out into the wilderness to carry our sins away. He's the suffering servant in Isaiah who's pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, who makes many to be accounted righteous. He's Jesus, the Son of Man and Son of God who came to seek and to save the lost. We cannot live without Him. Salvation is all of Christ. And God has appointed that we are saved by the simple means of faith, trusting in His work on the cross. If I could quote Wilcox one more time, he put it this way about the offense of the gospel. Pardon is a free gift. Ah, how nature, human nature, storms, frets, rages at this. <laughs> that all is of gift and it can purchase nothing with its acting and tears and duties. That all workings are excluded and of no value in heaven. <laughs> no value for your salvation for your justification, when we humble ourselves, when we abandon our righteousness and rest in the righteousness of Christ, that's how we receive the free gift of pardon and enter into the realm of God's favor and expectation of life. So have you humbled yourself like that? If you haven't, do it now. Receive the free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus. Paul said in verse 10, I have confidence in the Lord. You will take no other view. That is, you will look for no other path but the true gospel of grace once you really embrace this, once you experience real freedom, real answers, real hope. You won't want to leave that. (laughs) I have confidence, Paul says, because I know this gospel is good. I know this gospel is right. It comes from the one who calls you. (laughs) And if you're already a believer, rekindle your joy and your rest again. You might be going up and down thinking about the last week and how bad you were. 
And you're going to be tempted to think, okay, I've got to get it together. And then everything will be right between me and God. But no, everything is right between you and God because Christ did everything you need to have done. He did all the obedience. And now it's yours through faith. So don't worry about how bad last week was. Accept the, the security and the rest in your Savior and His work and move forward in obedience knowing God is for you. It is finished. Let that be our stability <laughs> in the ebb and flow of life. Let's pray. <clears throat> this gospel is from the one who called you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for making it clear to us through Paul by your Spirit. We need that. We're going to need that going out into the world here. We got our own conscience, it's, it's active and it, it tells on us. We know that we're not keeping the whole law, but Lord, again, like grass, help us to water it with these thoughts throughout the week. Water each other with these thoughts that we're resting in your goodness, your grace, your mercy through Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.